This is the word of the Lord. Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in the steadfast love. But I, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the testimony of Jonah. Thank you that in his rebellion you called out to him and you got his attention. And Father, that you called him out of the depth and you redeemed him, you saved him. And Father, thank you for that salvation that comes to us through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you had the opportunity to meet my friend <clears throat> Tiago. Where are you, brother? In the room somewhere? There he is, sitting by the Petersons. Tiago's a friend of Carl and Glenn's, uh, a pastor from Brazil, heads up a ministry, a publishing house there called Fiel. And uh, Tiago's the only person in the room with a sport coat. Welcome to Colorado. This is what we wear. You're welcome to wear this if you'd like. But he just came from Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, where they wear three-piece suits and ties. So um, you're welcome to wear whatever you'd like. We're glad you're here with us. If you're interested in supporting a pastor in Portuguese-speaking countries, talk to, talk to Tiago this morning, all right? Please, please talk with him. If you're interested in just supporting a publishing ministry that gets uh, gospel-centered, reformed, solid literature into the Portuguese-speaking world, uh, talk with this brother. Glad you're here with us this morning. Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. And uh, as you turn there, I want to ask you if someone asked you, what does it mean to be saved? What would you say? I remember that question stopping me cold as a child. I was playing some games with a bunch of other kids in the neighborhood. We were probably playing, you know, in the street, as you used to do back in those days. We were probably playing kick the can. Remember that game? I had to look it up online to remember how to play it when it came to mind, writing this introduction. Uh, or we might have been playing 500, but we were like out of the blue. We we're just playing a game and out of the blue, one of the neighborhood kids comes up to me and he knew that our family went to church. He knew that we thought everyone needed to be saved, quote unquote, saved. And so out of the blue, when he could have been kicking the can or something else, um, he asked me, so you guys are saved. What did you get saved from? And I had no idea. And I should have. Hopefully most of you could answer that question. But if not, if you feel like you should know the answer to the question, or if you're just curious to know more, 
about the answer to that question. God has you here on exactly the right day. This is what Jonah chapter 2 is all about. It's answering that question in a deeply powerful and personal way. What you get saved from. What it means to be saved. Now, there are a lot of different answers you could give to that question, aren't there? What it means to be saved. The Bible offers multiple descriptions of what salvation is. And most of the descriptions in the Bible are given to us in metaphors, aren't they? Word pictures. What we see in Jonah actually happened to this guy. But it's also a picture at the same time of what it means to be saved. And the Bible is filled with metaphors, pictures of salvation. This happens a lot in the Bible. When the spiritual reality that God wants to convey to us is so great that ordinary language can't quite get us there, the Holy Spirit just fills His Word with images to affect us about the meaning and impact and importance of these mysteries. Salvation is like that. It's so profound, you can't describe it quite directly. And so God engages our imaginations. For example, the Bible takes images from proceedings in a court of law. Salvation is a criminal violator hearing not guilty from the judge. We call that justification. Or to describe salvation, the Holy Spirit takes a picture from damaged friendship. Salvation is winning back peace and harmony between former friends. The Bible calls that reconciliation. Or, it takes an image from the realm of family life and tells us that salvation is when new parents make permanent commitments to an orphaned or abandoned child. The Bible calls that adoption. You see all these pictures getting at what salvation is? The Bible takes a picture from the religious rituals that would take place at a shrine and tells us salvation is turning aside the anger of an offended deity through the payment of a ransom. That's propitiation and atonement. Or it takes a picture from transactions in a marketplace and tells us that salvation is being freed and returned to your rightful owner. That is redemption. Or it takes a picture from international relations and tells us that salvation is becoming a naturalized citizen of a different kingdom by declaration of loyalty to a brand new Lord that's called conversion. You understand what I'm getting at? Salvation could be described in all these different ways. Take a picture from the realm of medicine and salvation in that world is being suddenly and permanently healed from an incurable disease. By His stripes, we are healed which is just another way of saying we're saved. These are the pictures the Bible gives us in answer to the question, what does it mean to be saved? And there are many more. I haven't even gotten into all. There's forgiveness and glorification and regeneration and illumination and spiritual union. And we could go on and on. The sheer number of pictures of salvation in the Bible tells us it's important. And the diversity of those pictures tells us that there's a whole lot going on in being saved. Our text for today gives us one of the most basic and personal definitions of what it means to be saved. It means rescued from danger. That's what it means to be saved. Rescued from deadly danger, even from death itself. But before we get into Jonah 2, let me remind you where we've 
Ben, we're in the second week of a study that we are calling God and His Enemies. The purpose is for us to consider how God deals with His enemies, of course, and then to learn from Him how we should deal with our own. Our text, we've taken two short little books in the Old Testament, Jonah and Nahum. We're going to deal with both of them in turn. Both these books record God's dealings with one of Israel's most ferocious foes, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, we're in Jonah first. And last week I pointed out that this book is satire. That's what Jonah is. It's meant to be satirical. Satire works in this way. The writer uses humor and irony and sometimes even ridicule to expose human foolishness. That's what's happening in the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, we watched as Jonah runs. He runs from his calling as a prophet. He runs from Nineveh. Ultimately, he's running to get away from God. He runs to the sea. He runs out onto a ship. He eventually runs through a storm, right off the edge of the ship, right into the water. And he ends up in the mouth of a fish. That's where the end of Jonah 1 leaves us. The interesting thing is, along the way, he causes all kinds of trouble for innocent people. Everyone around him suffers as he runs from God. And that's ironic. Because the chapter starts by drawing our attention to how Nineveh is causing trouble. And the chapter ends by demonstrating to us that Jonah is the one who's causing trouble. And the lesson, I said, was that anyone can become the wrong kind of person. We saw that as Jonah runs. Now today, in chapter 2, we watch and listen in as Jonah repents. Look at chapter 2. You can just see how it's laid out on the page. Somehow this literature is different from chapters 1 and 3 and 4. You just notice its layout on the page, right? This chapter is poetry. Poetry breaks not as... Stories do into scenes. Stories break into different scenes, right? From, when you watch a movie, it's scene by scene by scene. When you read a work of nonfiction, it breaks into paragraphs. Paragraph, but poetry breaks into stanzas. Now, this poem is really hard to divide into stanzas. I have no, no, no certainty as to where the stanza breaks are. I'll give you my suggestion. But I, I consulted a lot of commentaries and none of them agreed with each other. And so I'm just going to show you what I think are the three stanzas, and that'll help you make a little bit of sense of the poem. I think there are three stanzas, verses 2 to 4, verses 5 to 7, and verses 8 and 9. Let me show you why. I just want to help you get some organization to this thing. Stanzas 1 and 2, verses 2 to 4 and 5 to 7, they, they, they repeat the story of Jonah's crisis and God's answer. They just go over the same material. So thematically, they're fairly similar. Stanza 3, verses 8 and 9, develops that to an action point. Jonah does something as a result of that. Stanza 1 and stanza 2 end, if you notice, with reference to your holy temple. You see that? That might be an indication of some structural parallelism. The whole thing with stanzas 1 and 2, verse 2 down to verse um, 7, is framed with a reference to Jonah's prayer. In verse 2, at the very beginning, he prays. Do you see that? I called out to the Lord. And at the end of verse 7, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So it seems to be sort of blocking that section off. So that, I think, frames it up that way. 
Here's the lesson though, even if those aren't the stanza breaks, here's the clear lesson. The point of Jonah's whole poem, the point of this sermon is that God is willing to save anyone, anywhere, from anything. That's the point. You don't need to know the stanzas. You don't need to know the structure. You got to get that point. And that's not hard to find at all. God is willing to save anyone, even a rebel prophet like Jonah, anywhere, even in the belly of a fish or in this room this morning, from anything, even death or worse, prejudice. Because that's Jonah's main problem, isn't it? So let's take a look at it. We're just going to go through these verses in order. Stanza one, let's read verses one through four. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven from, away from your sight. Yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. Now we're parachuting in to the middle of an ongoing story. And I don't want you to forget the drama of chapter 1. In chapter 1 verse 16, look at it. The narrator tells us, the sailors had just tossed Jonah overboard and they're worshiping Yahweh on the deck of the ship. I wonder what's going on with Jonah. Well, I'm glad you asked, the narrator says. And the camera lens pans to the ocean surface. And then, picture this, down below the surface. And is plunging down into the deep darkness. And suddenly, into view, through the darkness, comes this huge fish. And, oh no. Oh yes, the lens goes right through the side of the fish. And inside is this bedraggled prophet, Jonah. That's where he is cruising through the Mediterranean Sea. Not on the Mediterranean Sea, down under, covered with fish guts. What's happening in there? Verse 1, was Jonah unconscious? Was he in pain? Was he dead? No. Apparently the belly of a fish is a great place to do some serious reflection on your life. Because that's what he's doing. He's thinking, he's evaluating, and by the time we catch up with him and listen in, he's actually praying. Verse 2 is essentially a summary of his whole experience. Look at it. He cried and the Lord answered. But I want you to notice in particular how he describes his situation. He uses two terms that are very telling. My distress, in line one, and the belly of Sheol, in the second line. Isn't that interesting? My distress, the belly of Sheol. Jonah's in distress, and, and, and you know where he ends up. He's, he's finally being reconciled to God, but this is how he gets there. How often is it that God uses distress to get a hold of people's lives? Isn't that right? Jonah's not praying because he's a spiritual guy. He's praying because he's in deep... <laughs> period. He's in deep. That's why he's praying. Up to this point, Jonah hasn't wanted to have anything to do with God. 
He's literally been trying to escape the presence of God. The whole reason he's in this spot is because he's fleeing from God. He believed to this point he could do a better job running his own life than God could do. Do you relate to that at all? I totally relate to that. That's how I got converted. I thought I could do a better job running my life than God and got to a place of such distress, I had nowhere else to turn. How many times is that the story of how people come to God? It's so interesting to me because he's running from God and where does that lead him? To God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Just keep a little pin in that in your frame of reference as we go through this. Look at the other term that he uses, the belly of Sheol. That's a description of the place of the dead. In other words, Jonah describes his experience not as being in the belly of a whale, but in the belly of death itself. We'll talk more about that when we get to verse 6. Look at verse 3. All this ocean imagery. Some people, it's, it's, it's fun to go to preaching workshops and whenever you're using, uh, uh, doing a workshop on a book of poetry, it's amazing how many guys in, in the room, and I don't know if ladies do this as well, but I, I talk with a lot of men. They're like, oh, why does God have to put poetry in the Bible? I so don't like poetry. This is why poetry exists in the Bible. Look at verse three. Can you feel the imagery? Look at that. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. This is what poetry is good for. It taps our imagination. It stirs our emotions. It helps you experience the drama. I'll talk a good deal more about that in verse 5. But for now, notice how Jonah describes this situation that he's in. He charges God with that. Do you see it in verse 3? You cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, we know the story about how Jonah got here, right? Who got him here? Well, Jonah did. Who threw him in? Well, the sailors did. But Jonah attributes all of that action to God. He's not being snarky. This is your fault I'm here. He's not doing that. He's actually confessing and repenting. He's actually acknowledging that God is pursuing him. That God has been coming after him. God's using all of this stuff to get his attention. Look at verse 17. Uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish. God is the one in charge of this moment, working his plan. Jonah thought he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and all the while he's running directly toward the Lord, right in God's hands. And I just want to point out to you, to help you appreciate the literature, this motif of God's control over nature is one of the most delightful and uh, in certain ways ironic elements of the book. The way that God uses nature to get at his prophet. In chapter 1, it's the storm, the wind, the waves. He prepares the fish. Remember what happens in chapter 4, if you know this story? He grows up a vine to give Jonah some relief. He prepares a worm to kill the vine. He brings a strong, uh, hot breeze. All of this to get Jonah's attention. He's working on Jonah through the created realm in ways that are meant to make us both appreciate this and kind of laugh at and with Jonah. I mean, look at how the book ends. Talking about nature. 
And God talking to Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and, and, and also these cows? He like makes a point about cows. This, this thing about the natural world and God's control over it, he leverages to get his prophet's attention. Don't overlook that. The things that God will do to get the attention of his people. Verse 4. Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight. Well, goodness gracious. That's what he wanted, right? He wanted to get away from God. He was trying to escape the presence of the Lord. And what did he find when he got there? It was the opposite of what he wanted. Has that not been your experience? Every time I say, God, I don't think you've got the best plan for me here. I'm going to do my plan. It's always miserable. Where does Jonah end up? In what he calls hell. I got away from you. I was driven away from your presence, which is what he wanted. And he calls that earlier Sheol. That's not what he wanted at all. It was hell. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's line in The Great Divorce where he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. Listen to this sentence. Please, every one of you in the room, listen to this. All those who are in hell, choose it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be hell. What makes hell so painful is that God finally said, it's your will. I'll give it to you. Jonah got exactly what he was trying for, and it made him miserable. Let me ask you honestly, when ever in your life has giving into temptation yielded the high-octane, great experience of real living that it promised? Never. And so recognize, it's not God being mean to you. It's Him wooing you and drawing you and winning you. I know as I, as I talk with non-Christians, and there might be some in this room who aren't following Jesus, this description of the gospel can be offensive. You're saying to me that I am in dire need of rescue. I have to have God and I did this to myself. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And if you're honest, when have you ever lived up to your own standards? So why be mad at God for being indignant with you? And let me point out one more thing. The God that Jonah is fleeing from, the God that is actually correcting him here, chastening him, is the God who saves him. That's the gospel. The God from whom we need to be saved is the God who saves us. That's the God you're running from. Why? Why would you keep running? He wants you. He loves you. He offers to forgive you. For Pete's sake, he orchestrated this whole event to get Jonah. And he brought you here this morning to get you. Now, notice God's great wisdom. I mean, this, this, I just want you to admire him for a moment at what's going on in the story. Jonah is trying everything he possibly can and to, to get away from God. And all of his frantic efforts just led him right to God. How wise is this God? You can't outsmart him. And let me also point out to you his goodness. 
Jonah doesn't want to be part of God. He doesn't want to follow God. He doesn't want to obey God. And so what does God do? He just makes him want to. He doesn't force him, right? God's not forcing Jonah to pray. He's just brought him to the place where he's like, help, God, please, I I need you now. Maybe that's what God's up to in your life because he's so good. He's not gonna force you. But he's never gonna deliver on the promises that sin has made. He's gonna draw you to himself with his goodness so that you want to come on your own. How often God uses distress to bring people to himself. Apparently it's very often because there are worldviews and faith systems not even that, are Christ, that aren't even Christian and they believe this same thing. Do you remember that great um, philosophical religious movie, Kung Fu Panda? Remember that? <laughs> remember what Master Uguay says to, uh, I don't remember what the cat or whatever, who? No, not that cat. The one that is Master Uguay's greatest you know, student and Shifu? Yeah, when Shifu goes to Uguay. Some of you are like, I've never seen this. Well, you need to watch this great movie. <laughs> Shifu is frantic when Uguay tells him that Tai Long has, is going to escape from prison because he's seen a vision. And he sends this messenger and they double the guards and all this stuff. And Master Uguay very calmly says, um, I wrote this, uh, uh, one often meets his destiny on the road he takes to avoid it. Listen, that's not even Christianity speaking. People all around the world realize that so often the thing we're fleeing from meets us in the end. Why is that true? Because there is a God who superintends over all circumstances drawing you to himself. That's what's happening in this story. Well, look at the second stanza. We go over this same ground, this same territory. Jonah wants to rehearse it for us again. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to a land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Notice again what Jonah needs to be saved from. Look at verse 5. The intense imagery. He's drowning and you can almost feel it. And uh, honest apologies to anyone who has hydrophobia or, or a sincere fear of whatever fear of drowning is. I mean, this is a dramatic verse. Look at it. Waters closed over me. That description of being unable to breathe. Deep surrounded me. The deeper you get in water, the more pressure there is. And so just imagine, Jonah looks left and right and down and worst of all, up. And it's water everywhere. Weeds wrapped around my head. A description of being trapped and helpless. He cannot get out. He cannot free himself. This is what poetry is meant to do. Verse 6. Jonah thought he was going to die. The roots of the mountains is an ancient Near Eastern image for death. The land whose bars closed upon me, that's the land of the dead. Once that door closes behind you, no one gets out. That's his point. There's no escape. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be rescued from this. Rescued from death. Certain unavoidable, inescapable death. But look at what happened. 
God saved him. End of verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever, but you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God can save even from death. But it's the recognition of that need that prompts us to cry out to him. That's what Jonah does. He's suddenly aware. I need you. I'm making a mess of this. I'm going to die. Verse 7. Why would God allow Jonah to go through, through something so awful? Because it's that awful experience that prompted him to cry to God. Look at it. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Until that moment, Jonah related to God in theory, didn't he? Some of you grew up in a Christian home. You've heard all about God. Some of what you heard sounded good. A lot of what you heard and saw didn't sound good. But to you in general, God has only ever been a theory. It's like Jonah standing on the deck of the ship saying, well, I serve Yahweh, the God who made the land and the sea. Did you? you do you? You really serve that God? You fear him? Why are you running from him? It was just all theory. But until Jonah experienced this distress, that knowledge of God didn't drop 18 inches into his heart. But the distress got it there. The suffering got it there. And he says, verse 7, I remembered the Lord. What did he remember? Well, he remembered that God hears prayer and he's glad to answer and no situation is too difficult for him to answer. Twice, here in verse 7, and then up in verse 4, he mentions your holy temple. For an Israelite, that was the place of God's presence, his blessing, his favor. The place that was the center of all their national desire. Their God was there. Jonah wants to be back in the presence of God. Now stanza 3, verses 8 and 9. We see that being saved has changed Jonah. Look at it. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Being saved changes you, doesn't it? After this, Jonah obeys God instead of running from him. Chapter 3. I mean, look at it. Chapter 3 starts the same way chapter 1 started. The word of the Lord came to Jonah second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Message is the same way chapter 1 started. Only this time Jonah obeys. Being saved has changed him. Well, at least for now. Chapter 4 shows it hasn't changed him a lot. But here he confesses he knows that his God is different from the other gods. Yahweh is, look at how Jonah describes him in chapter 4, verse 2. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. No other God offers all of that, and Jonah knows it. Now, in chapter 4, he uses that in a way that will surprise you. But here, he's banking on that. This God is different from all these other gods. And Jonah's thankful. Verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. H have you noticed something here? This is actually a psalm of thanksgiving, not a psalm of petition. He's not asking God for much. And it's certainly not a, it's not a, it's not a lament. He's not just like mourning. It's not even a psalm of confession. Jonah never names his sins. He never confesses to iniquity or transgression. He never asks for God's forgiveness. The word repentance doesn't appear in this psalm anywhere. 
It's just purely a psalm of thanksgiving. Did you notice that? How can that be? How can God save someone who doesn't do anything to get it? Well, look at the last line. Here's how. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. He does it all from start to finish. There's nothing in Jonah that warrants being treated like this. There's nothing in you that warrants being treated like that. Three huge affirmations in this statement. Take it just like a phrase at a time. That word salvation answers the question of what kind of God is Yahweh. He's the kind that saves. He's not only the creator and the storm bringer and the fish appointer. He's the savior. That's the kind of God he is. Salvation comes from Yahweh. But there's a second affirmation. The Lord, that name Yahweh, the name of the Jewish covenant God, He's the only Savior. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. No one else is the idea. The New Living Translation renders this line, my salvation comes from the Lord alone. The point is, if you want to get saved, you have to come to this God. Now, if you want something else, you can go somewhere else. Like if you want an NBA championship, the Nuggets can get you that. Right? Isn't that great? If you want advice on insurance, talk to Peggy Carter. If you want advice on how your house is hanging together structurally and something's broken and needs, talk to Chris Carter. He can help you with that, right? If you want piano lessons, talk to Chris Green. If you want tips on debate, talk to Steve Vaughn. If you want uh, help with some, 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 some home inspection things, talk to Ken Meckelberg. If you had a home theater and you wanted to get that in, Brad Waite would be your guy. There's all sorts of places you can go to get all sorts of answers. But if you need to be saved, you've got to come to Yahweh. He's the only one. No other God will do that for you. But that middle part belongs to, in, in Hebrew, literally there's no verb. It's just a preposition. Salvation is to, is the idea of salvation, to the Lord or toward the Lord or for the Lord or as it's rendered here, that preposition can mean belongs to. Meaning Yahweh is the authority over salvation. He decides who gets it and when and where and how. And he's made all the necessary preparation, hasn't he? I mean, think about this. Long before Jonah got a word that he was supposed to go to Nineveh, God spawned a fish and let it grow really big and directed its path on that stormy day through the Mediterranean so that when Jonah plunked into the water and started to sink, that fish was nearby. And then he made the provision of that fish opening its mouth at just the right time and swallowing that guy in and somehow having oxygen inside that he could breathe. I have no idea. It's a miracle. God does it. It doesn't bother me that he does this because he resurrected his son from the dead to overcome my sins. That's the biggest miracle. God did all of these things arranging to save this prophet because salvation belongs to him. That's just how he is. He arranges that kind of stuff. Just like with you, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will. And then He set forward Jesus as a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And He made all the preparations necessary. Did you ever read about the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I gave to you what was of first importance, what I myself had received, how that Christ... Um, uh, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, that first sentence makes perfect sense, right? He died according to the Scriptures for our sins. Isaiah 53 predicted that would happen. Psalm 22 described a lot of what happened. Where did the Scriptures anticipate that He would be buried and rise again in three days? Where's that prophecy? It's right here. It's right here. This is what was necessary for you to get saved. God saved Jonah from the whale after three days in anticipation of saving you from his wrath after his son was in the heart of the earth. for three. That's what Jesus himself said, right? Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. He resurrected His Son for your salvation. Or, as Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 says it, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. God did that. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. So if you're not a Christian, cry out to God to save you. He loves to forgive. He would much rather save than condemn. There's no prejudice with Him. Those pagan sailors prayed and he had mercy on them. Jonah prayed and he had mercy on him. Just come for mercy. If you're a Christian, learn the lesson of God's compassion. God loves to save people different from you. Can you be happy about that? That's the lesson of this book. Now, at the end of chapter 2, it's a great place to be, right? Looks like the book is headed toward a happy ending. The prophet is right with God. There's a needy city that's going to hear a message. How's that going to go? Well, we'll talk about it next week. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to our own need of grace and open our eyes to the wonder of the gospel and cause us all over again to worship Jesus who has brought us salvation. Salvation, we know, belongs to the Lord. And we're so glad you have freely given it to us. Friends, communion is a reenactment of what saved you. The death of Jesus for sinners. His body broken, symbolic of, uh, symbolized in that bread. His blood flowing, symbolized in that juice. If you're a Christian, come receive these symbols of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you need to receive Jesus. You do that right by faith in your heart, right where you're at right now. All right, so take a few moments, reflect on what you've heard, and then come receive bread and juice in fellowship with Christ.
Christ is risen. See God's salvation plan wrought in love, born in faith, and in sacrifice. Fulfilled in Christ the man, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. Mary weeping, where is he lay? As in sorrow she turns from the empty tomb. A voice speaking, calling her name. It's the Master, the Lord, raised to life again. The voice that spans the years, speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to us. Will sound till he appears, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. Walk with the Father, ancient of days, through the Spirit, ready to close faith with certainty, honor and blessing, glory and praise to the King. Crowned with power and authority. And we are raised with him. Death is dead. Love is one. Christ is conquered. And we shall reign with him. For he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. Are raised with him. Death is dead. Love is one. Christ is conquered. And we shall reign with him, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Yeah, amen. That's right. Thanks for gathering with us on this cold day. Thanks to the musicians for leading us. Thanks to the kids' ministry workers who are probably hearing me thinking, oh, finally, he's done. Uh, and so as you go, may the love of God the Father and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with all of you. Amen? Amen. We're dismissed.